everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, and anxiety spectrum disorders and getting your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Foss, and I'm a licensed therapist specializing in OCD and anxiety disorders. Thank you so much for joining me today. So typically, this is a question and answer based podcast where you can send me questions about OCD, anxiety disorders, what your experience is, um, any questions or advice you're looking for, any guidance. Uh, and I'm more than happy to answer that. Uh, you can send me a question by going over to fearcastpodcast.com and clicking on the submit a question link. You can also send me a question over at Instagram. I'm fearcastpodcast over there. Uh, if you send me an audio question by sending me a DM with the um, uh, just recording your audio through that, that's probably the easiest way to get a question. Uh, that tends to go to the top of the list, and I will uh, uh, get that on as soon as I can. But again, uh, if you send in any question, even if it is audio or even if it's excuse me, not audio, uh, just a text one, um, I, I will I will get it. I will read it, consider it, and likely put it up on a future episode. Today is going to be a little bit different. Um, today I have uh, a guest on. Today I have um, Mike Hetty, who is uh, joining me to talk about shame, which I know is a super exciting conversation or a super exciting topic, um, but um, it actually really, really is. Um Mike was so uh, kind to join us today to, to um, uh, uh, share with us some of his expertise in shame, uh, just um, uh, what the experience is, what the what the um, uh, uh, emotion is, and um, how it relates to toxic shame, um, and also how it relates to and his experience within OCD and anxiety disorders. Uh, and he shares some really great tips on how to start uh, building your awareness of shame and how you can start working with it and uh, growing through it and um, through it with it and despite it I think might be a fair way to say it but um, I, I, it, it, either way it, it was a, a wonderful conversation I really enjoyed this chat uh, I, I won't waste uh, too much time let me just tell you a little bit about him I'll, I'll read you his bio and then we'll just jump right into it so um, uh, Mike Hetty uh, is a uh, LCPC and is the co-owner and co-director of the Anxiety and Stress Disorders Institute of Maryland, where he has specialized in the treatment of OCD, anxiety disorders, and related conditions for the past 16 years. He's a faculty member of the IOCDF's Training Institute, a clinical fellow with the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, and is on the advisory board for OCD Training School. He is a regular presenter at the annual conferences for uh, the IOCDF and ADAA, and uh, he provides regular consultation for therapists. He's produced numerous professional webinar trainings for uh, 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 ERP and ICBT for OCD and has appeared on several podcast. Uh, has appeared on several podcasts discussing shame, intimacy, perfectionism, and other OCD related issues. So, uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with Mike Hetty. All right, Mike Hetty, thank you so much for joining us on the FearCast today to talk about everyone's favorite subject, shame. <laughs> I, you know, I wish it was more of everyone's favorite subject, but uh, yeah, um, it's one of my one of my favorite subjects. So I'm glad you were having me on to talk about it. 
absolutely. Well, this was uh, this conversation was a, a, a ways in the making, and um, I had uh, I become aware of you through the ICBT world and kind of your connection with that, and just also seeing some of your talks on ICBT and just getting to know you a little bit here and there. Um, I'd reached out to you to talk about shame as something that you are interested in, both um, well, not both personally and professionally, but at the very least professionally. Um, and uh, yeah, so appreciative to have you on to chat about what it is. So I guess to start us off, um, I guess why don't we just define the terms? What What is shame? Because as we were talking beforehand, there's a bit of a misunderstanding about what shame is, what its role is, why we have it. So why don't we just start with start with the basics? What is it? Sure. Yeah. What is shame? Shame is, uh, it's a universal experience. Um, I think the shorthand we can use for it is emotion. Although there are some affect theorists that would say it's an affect. It's not an emotion. It is what gives rise to emotions, but that's a whole rabbit hole. We don't need to go down for today's purpose. It's just a core emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not unlike fear is a core emotion and, and joy is a core emotion and anger is a core emotion. Shame is a core emotion. So we're all sort of wired to experience it. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's probably evolutionary value in that, right? That the evolution is an efficient process. It doesn't keep things around that don't need to be around. Uh, so the mm -hmm. capacity for us as social creatures to feel shame probably has some value. And I can go into that later. So shame is like a really painful self-conscious emotion. It is a recognition that the self, us, independent of any person or thing, just us internally, is uh, somehow stepping out of line mm -hmm. from what we agreed to do or agreed to um, uh, function as. And so fundamentally, shame is good, which I know is going to make people uh, like their hair on fire. Right. Shame is actually good to have. I mean, there's that famous quote, have you no shame? <laughs> um, you know, that there's, there's a good amount of shame. There's healthy functional shame, right? And then there's the other shame, the one that we spend a great deal of time talking about and researching and treating, um, and we can call that dysfunctional shame, maladaptive shame, um, compassion-focused therapy. People, Paul Gilbert, call it high shame. And uh, John Bradshaw in the 90s with his self-help books called it toxic shame. And I like that phrase, toxic shame. Mm. Um, but that's shame in a nutshell. I like it. Thank you. And it's, actually, I'm kind of curious, what, what is it about the word toxic shame that seems to resonate with you versus some of those other descriptors? You know... I mean, it's snappy and catchy. There's that. It is. Well, there's that. It's, it's colloquial. We understand toxic relationships to be, you know, that there is some interaction that's problematic and we really kind of need to break up with it. <laughs> and uh, I think like, maladaptive and dysfunctional are psychological terms that are unnecessarily long mm -hmm. and hard to spell. So why don't we just go with toxic? And it really gets to the point. I mean, this is toxic shame is shame plus 
uh, a problematic relationship that we probably need to break up with, mm-hmm. you know? And, and that really is where the treatment is focused is on the toxic part, mm-hmm. right? It's not on like anxiety and anxiety disorders, if right. you will, right? Like we don't treat anxiety in the sense that you're going to eradicate the capacity to get anxious. We want to get anxious. That's a good survival mm. process for us to have. We don't want an anxiety disorder mm-hmm. in the sense where it's, it's happening when it ought not to happen. It's happening at a level or for a length of duration that is beyond useful. And that is anxiety plus a, a toxic kind of relationship, if you will. Again, you know, boiling it down to some, some overly simplistic basics. Right. And I think that that the way you described that is, is, is makes it a really functional way to think about it, right? It is this natural, normal human emotion that to a certain degree, to certain degrees is good, is wanted. It's when it starts to become problematic. I kind of, I've, I've thought about anxiety kind of like a bell curve, right? Quote, normal anxiety exists in the middle of the bell curve with the vast majority of us in it, right? We feel a little bit more anxiety with things, less anxiety. When they fall into the tails, the very extreme of it, where you're feeling a lot of anxiety, that's where we start to call it a disorder. It is out of order of what the average person would be feeling or triggered to. And similarly, the people at the other end of the tail where they don't feel enough anxiety, you know, colloquially, people call them crazy, it's the people who are, you know, free soloing Yosemite or uh, El Capitan. I'm not. That guy doesn't have enough anxiety. He needs to have more anxiety. Yeah. There was an NPR podcast. I'm going to forget uh, the name of it, but it featured a story of a woman who had a calcified amygdala and didn't experience normal, healthy amounts of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it got her into a fair amount of trouble. So, yeah, I mean, there's that sort of Goldilocks zone of emotional experience, mm-hmm. emotional reaction. And, and when we start getting outside of that zone, I think we start getting more and more interference in, in sort of functioning in one way or the other. Um, and I see shame falling into that. Mm-hmm. You know, what's most common, at least in, in the reading, the research I've done and, and things I've heard in the years I've been in practice is you only really hear about the bad shame, the shame that has, you know, carried, you know, from traumas um, that society has forced onto to people to shame you, to try to, to silence you. And while that exists, mm-hmm. that's not the same thing as, you know, our capacity, our brain's capacity to experience an emotion, mm-hmm. right? That there is there is a functional kind of shame. I can give like an, an analogy if it's helpful for people. Um, if you've had a car that's been built sometime in the last few years, it probably has a safety feature called lane departure software, mm-hmm. right? Lane departure technology. You're driving on the highway and there's this little camera sensor that's sensing the lanes and if you start to drift into the other lane your steering wheel shakes and the light goes off and you sort of jostles you back into the lane assuming the technology works which you know it's a big assumption um it corrects course it keeps you on course and i think shame is kind of our own internal lane departure software we're all social creatures our survival depends on cohesion within the social group we all agree internally 
on on basic ideas and premises of how we live and when shame gets activated good shame healthy shame is activated when we veer outside of that mm-hmm. to self to have a self-reflect and self-correct mm-hmm. and then it disappears it does what it's intended to do and it moves on right right that's healthy shame the bad shame the the, the toxic shame that's the stuff that doesn't move on it, it doesn't lead to useful uh, experiences or useful responses and it tends to haunt you mm. Before we jump into the definitions then about you know toxic shame and how that's experienced and and then we'll certainly get into how it is experienced within OCD and anxiety spectrum disorders. I think some people with the with the definition of shame you've given might conflate that with guilt. Yeah, I mean I conflated it with guilt for a while. I'm like, what, we're just talking about the same thing here. And, you know, the researchers are consistently parsing this stuff out. Like, mm-hmm. they are different. They're not semantically the same. Um, they're quite different. And mm-hmm. where, where I have uh, read and agreed on the differences, it boils down to this for me, that, that guilt is usually about a behavior in the context of an other. Mm. Other could be another person, like a coworker, a best friend, a parent. Other could be something ethereal like God or the universe, or other could be something like the environment. But there's a behavior in the context of an other. And what gets highlighted, like what, what gets the spotlight or the floodlight shown onto it with guilt mm-hmm. is the behavior done to the other which then often leads to what they call pro-social or functional uh, repair attempts. You can Mm -hmm. apologize, right? You can confess. You can make a repair attempt for the relationship. Mm -hmm. You can adjust a behavior to then correct, right? So it's like, if I did a bad thing, I feel like maybe I could go donate some money or, um, you know, volunteer my time for Habitat for Humanity. So, Guilt is actually not so much associated with mental health problems from mm-hmm. the research perspective. Um, shame, on the other hand, um, is shining that same spotlight, not on a behavior in the context of others, but on yourself, capital S-E-L-F, the innermost person. Mm-hmm. And it is about an attempt to to self-correct based on your own expectations of of what you agreed upon and and think are right um so it doesn't involve or require an other Mm. so that's there's a huge sort of demarcation in this piece where i would make the argument although i don't know that it's empirically supported yet that if you're gonna feel guilt you're also gonna feel shame because I would suspect that guilt is built upon the scaffolding mm-hmm. of shame. And to recognize that I've had an impact on another also makes you self-reflect that you did a thing you ought not have done. Right. Right? Again, this is healthy shame we're talking about here. And there could be a, a, a situation where I experience shame, but there's no other insight. There, there wasn't a behavior that affected another at all. Mm-hmm. It was just me in my own sort of self, and I bro- I broke some kind of rule or expectation, and so that's not what's that? That's not guilt. Who am I, I going to apologize to myself? 
mm-hmm. you know. So this there is a, there is a line that I think is useful to separate the two, um, and and I like this idea of the spotlight highlighting what seems to be wrong. Guilt, it's the behavior in the context of an other, and shame, it's you know a behavior, a thought, a thing, but only in the context of the self. Mm. Is it in a sense? Can you view the self as the self is the person, the entity that you are needing atonement with, that you are reaching out to to get right? Yeah, you could make that case, right? That this is not an external uh, other; this mm-hmm. is an internal you, right? Mm-hmm. And that an observer you, if you will, can look at you who cheated on a test that no one knew about right. um, and wants to self-correct, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do, I make the argument as some others have that, that there are emotions that are part of the tree of shame, sometimes referred to as shame anchored emotions that mm-hmm. the, that shame um, creates a scaffolding where other emotions like embarrassment exist um, humiliation, um, mortification, chagrin. Uh, these are all self-conscious emotions, right? To some degree or another. Mm-hmm. They're not about fear. They're not about danger. They're mm-hmm. not about threat. They're about, they're about social cohesion. They're about the self. They're about being in alignment with this sort of group. Um, and if I can nerd out for like 30 seconds there's been some emerging research that i I would love to see more on talking about how shame which is largely considered to be that of of the social animals right Mm -hmm. we don't tend to see it um we don't know how to look for it in the non-social animals um that it's actually likely built on the same architecture as disgust which Mm -hmm. is a much older much more primitive you know experience of living creatures is disgust as a reaction to things that could kill you that could um that you ought to stay away from right Mm. and and since evolution is you know economical it uh it's efficient it loves to recycle it loves to reuse it's not going to build a whole brand new scaffolding for Mm -hmm. this now evolved social animal it's going to say well what do we have that will help this thing thrive in this new social environment. We have mm-hmm. disgust, but what if we made disgust but pointed towards the self? Right. Right? And so shame is often seen as disgust towards the self. Mm. I think that adds a whole extra flavor on it, too, kind of viewing it as this, this you know, we, we all know what disgust feels like, and there's a disgusting feeling when you're experiencing shame of, like, I, I'm grossed out by me. I don't like the thing that I have have done have done to somebody else again i think we're kind of this is now veering into guilt territory but it's yeah it's that bad i've kind of clunkily if that's even a word it defines itself but it's it clunkily defining them as you know guilt is that bad feeling when we've done something bad shame is that bad feeling when we feel we are something bad yeah and and again i i I further break that down, but I like that that simplistic break <clears throat> that uh, I've done something bad in the context of an other of a relationship. Right again, of a relationship, right? Um, and 
and how you define that can be how you define that. But, mm-hmm. but shame again is, is so much more about stuff. doesn't require an other at all, unless you consider sort of the self as a different part. And then we're getting to sort of philosophical. Yeah. It, know, it, that, that can be its own rabbit hole that perhaps we'll jump down. Right. So, so kind of in seeing the differences between these two, kind of the, the, the guilt element, the shame element, we've talked about how both of those can be helpful in a sense of turning us, turning us back towards personally valuable ac- actions, activities, relationship styles, behaviors, etc. So when does it turn into toxic shame? When does it become problematic for somebody? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think it's it's hard to sort of sort of start in one place because it's a really big question but toxic shame begins when when we start trying to relate to it in a way that is about escaping it controlling it um avoiding it you know not unlike anxiety that's mm-hmm. when anxiety is a problem is is shame because of problem because we stop being able to listen to it Right. Um, I shared with you before we chatted that there's a few quotes I really love that guide my understanding of of relationships to emotions. David Barlow's great quote that, you know, emotions have signal value. Mm. Right. They're signaling something to you and they're trying to tell you something, communicate something to you. You know, uh, Susan David's quote, uh, emotions are data, not directives. Mm-hmm. Data, it's information. They're not necessarily you know, things you must go do, but there's certainly valuable information there. And so it becomes toxic when we have a repeated way of relating to it that isn't about listening to it. It's about trying to escape or control it. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get into trying to make sense of how we do that. How do we try to escape and control it in ways that are toxic and problematic? And I'm happy to jump into that if you'd like. Let's jump into that. Let's jump in. So a couple of years ago, um, the pandemic has me on pandemic time, probably five or six years ago. Um, my coworker, uh, former, uh, former supervisor, mentor, Carl Robbins and I, we worked together. Um, he's very much a, a, a nerd. I say that lovingly. And he does deep dives into everything. And he got hooked into shame and how it was relevant to treating OCD, anxiety disorders, depression, and did a a number of talks to our Wednesday staff meeting about it, where really piqued my interest. And I did my own deep dive into it along with him. And a lot of reading from a lot of different sort of perspectives, but the one that seemed to capture me the most that Carl introduced me to um, was a psychoanalytic psychiatrist named Donald Nathanson. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was, you know, back in the eighties, just completely focused on shame. Now he was uh, focused on it from a psychoanalytic perspective, surprise, surprise, the eighties. That was still sort of the du jour, if you will. Um, and he came up in 1987 with a graphical representation um, that he called the compass of shame. And if you would sort of close your eyes and imagine 
the, the listeners can do this. Close your eyes and imagine. If you're listening to this podcast while driving, don't listen to Mike. Keep your eyes open. But go ahead. Keep your eyes open. Um, and, and do it later. But like you, you can imagine a compass. It's got it's got four poles, right? North, mm-hmm. south, east, west. And each pole of the compass represents a reaction to shame. Now, I say these are toxic reactions or toxic relationships. That's not something Nathanson said, but um, I sort of uh, edited it a little bit mm-hmm. for, for my own purposes. So they are the following. I don't think they need to be in any particular order, but let's say the north pole of the compass is um, what we might call appeasement behaviors in, in animals, right? The tail between the legs, mm-hmm. the eyes wide open, but head down. In humans, it's getting quiet, silent, and small. It's known as withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And so when we start to feel shame of any kind, little shame like embarrassment, big shame like humiliation, mm-hmm. one of the ways we can respond to it is to withdraw, to get quiet, to get silent, to get small. Mm-hmm. If you think to yourself, uh, have you ever been to a conference, been wandering around looking for a familiar face, and you finally see someone and you wave and you go, hey, and then it's not who you think it is, and then you cover uh, your mouth. Embarrassing. And that whole covering of the mouth is, is another withdrawal. I'm hiding. quiet. Yeah, right? I'm hiding. So that's withdrawal. That's pretty obvious. It's pretty basic. It's not the one we tend to focus on the most, but it's there. Um, the South Pole of this compass is avoidance. Mm-hmm. Uh, which us in the anxiety and OCD world know all too well. Mm-hmm. It's the bread and butter of how we cope in unhelpful ways. Um, so this is avoidance of people, places, things, avoidance um, of memories. I, I throw in here perfectionism. Perfectionism mm-hmm. as a behavior. Because, right. and I get a lot of this from the compassion-focused therapy crowd, um, uh, Paul Gilbert and, and company, um, talk about the idea of perfectionistic behaviors as actually sometimes functioning to avoid or escape shame. Yeah, I think Brene Brown uh, talks a little bit about that as well as as her, a, a effortful attempt to not feel a bad feeling with what whatever that might be. Yeah, you know, and, and some people might refer to it. I forget this, the therapist, probably a couples therapist or family therapist, said it was a, avoiding a one-down position, right? Yeah. Where it's that I I need to just be above rejection and failure and, mm-hmm. and ostracization. So I need to be perfect here. I need a perfect attendance to make up for feeling like I'm not a good person. Um, so that's avoidance and and. You know, we can dive into that, but I think we understand that for the most part. Yeah. The the east pole um, of the compass is attacking others, and this one looks kind of like, you know, being passive aggressive, being verbally aggressive, being physically aggressive, um, silent treatment mm-hmm. when someone real or perceived has tried to make us feel small tried to shame us and again it could have been deliberate or inadvertent we often can feel a sense that we want to make them feel as small as us um we want to sort of defend in this way and it can be attacking the others so how when i feel shame 
And if I imagine it's someone who made me feel this way, I'm going to want to attack the other person. Yeah, I, I could certainly see that as, you know, for feeling kind of b bad about ourselves or bad about something we've done, we can lash out at other people that we love. We can be rude or snide or say those things that we don't want to say. Yeah, if you think of like, you know, a typical relationship where someone says, hey, you know, I have a, I have a, a problem I'd like to talk to you about. If the person's really defensive, mm -hmm. they hear the problem and then globalize it and be like, well, I'm just a terrible husband then. Yeah. That's an attack others shame response. You mm -hmm. feel shame because someone brought up something about your interaction with them that wasn't great. And instead of sort of hearing that, mm -hmm. reacted to the shame of that with an attack that was, well, I guess I'm just a horrible, terrible husband and I'm going to turn this around on you and make mm -hmm. you say, no, I don't think you're a horrible, terrible husband, I, right? Like, Yeah, I hear that disgust element in that too, that feeling of I, I can't have this at all. I need to push this away from me as much as I can and I want to push this on you for even bringing it up. Exactly, yeah. That, and that's that tends to be how it shows up. Um you know, and the last one, I think probably the most pervasive and probably even the most obvious is to attack the self. Mm. We get into self-criticism, right? Self-punishment, um, attacking one's character. Self-deprecation. Right? Self-deprecation, being the butt of a joke, but you're not really in on the joke, right? Mm -hmm. You actually feel like you're a bad below you know um you know broken polluted person mm -hmm. and so attacking the self is a very common um experience for people in a toxic relationship so all four of those poles capture a great deal i wouldn't say all but it's a shorthand mm -hmm. captures a great deal the different kinds of responses we can have that set up the stage for a toxic relationship to shame mm -hmm. because now you're trying to escape the emotion itself not listen to what it might have to tell you mm -hmm. um and then you're off to the races trying to withdraw avoid be perfect attack others or attack yourself mm -hmm. right it's interesting they they are all of them for the most part, are pulling you away from relationship. They are, in and of themselves, uh, isolating. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And they can really punctuate that message that I'm not good enough. And we do that to ourselves by running away, pushing somebody else, uh, pushing other people away. Um, kind of that idea of, of, of appeasement, getting distant, getting small, getting quiet. It's, I'm not going to reach out to make this right together it's I, i'm i need to be shunned in a sense yeah and and you know appeasement behaviors in animals have a functional relationship when it's hierarchical right they right. think like wolves like appeasement behavior amongst wolves makes sense right there's an alpha mm -hmm. and you need to not sort of take the big piece of meat right mm -hmm. um and there's a structure and a hierarchy and a way things are done and so appeasement behavior is a signal i get it Right. I you're, get it. You're the big dog here. Right. And, and, and now in our modern world, that doesn't really function right. in the same way. Right. Um, I will say, and I probably would have gotten to it later, um, but I'm sort of preempting some people's questions that they might have as they're listening, which is when I say shame has something to teach us, that doesn't always mean that your reaction to shame is just. 
right? That you should feel shame, right? Sometimes you shouldn't feel shame. Think of waking up from a dream where behaviors happened that weren't real. You might feel shame upon waking, but that's a bad, scary dream. And you don't need to own that shame and you don't need to practice self-compassion for that. That was a dream. That was a made-up circumstance that provoked, right, the ability to feel shame. Um, Sometimes what shame has to teach us is that it it's bullshit, right? That it came from a scary story, which is often true in OCD, mm -hmm. that it came from a bad dream, that it came from some other person trying to tell you not to be you, mm. right? But you don't need to own that shame, right? If you know, oh, that person's trying to shame me, what's well, their problem, really? Mm -hmm. But if you react to your own shame in this knee-jerk, habitual way of, I'm just going to run, escape, attack, you never actually learn that where it came from wasn't something you had to own. It, didn't, it, it doesn't require a self-correction on your part, which mm -hmm. is what shame is always intended. Good, healthy shame always intended to promote self-correction. Mm-hmm. Right. And and when we have these toxic relationships, we end up doing everything but self-correction. Right. We think on some level beating myself up is self-corrective. Right. Kristen Knapp goes into this when mm -hmm. she talks about when she talks about um, self-esteem um, and self-compassion. She says that a lot of people think that giving yourself self-compassion is indulgent. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, it's like this thing that I don't deserve to do. I need to pick myself up on my bootstraps and hold myself accountable. And that's another way of saying self criticize masquerading as self correction. I hear these things all the time from, from people, from clients I work with on, on, on the one hand. Yeah, certainly they'll hear that self compassion and they'll twist self compassion to say it, 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 it's okay, or I am okay in my entirety, and there's nothing that I can do wrong, as if to say that's what self-compassion means. Or the other side is, it's the justification of the compass. I do this so that I'm a good person. I do this so that um, you know I, I can learn from this and improve, right? I should be doing this to myself or avoiding or, uh, I mean, maybe not attacking. That's a, a, a rough one. But certainly that self-deprecation and that, that excessive self-criticism, they argue that it's good. Right. And, of course, we can, we can kind of put the lie to that very fast with mm -hmm. a simple intervention by saying, at what age do you teach your own kids? to self-criticize, to self-shame, to, you know, to attack one's character, uh, to be perfectionistic. Like, at what age do you teach them to do that, to handle experiences that are negative, right? To handle a failure or a mistake or real or perceived failures or mistakes. Like, we would never, ever teach our kids to do that. Like, inevitably, when I say this to a client, they're like, well, I wouldn't teach my kid, but somehow I'm different. Mm. Is it I'm different, I'm, sp I'm special, I need this more than the other kid? Or it could be that I can't help it, that, that this is just how I am. My you know, they throw their hands up. Yeah, and so I throw my hands up in the air, I'm wired this way. And giving them a sense of hope, like, nope, this isn't about how you're wired. This is actually a behavioral thing. Mm -hmm. And it's a relational thing. And we can change these things, but we first have to become aware of them. Mm -hmm. And the step we would say of any good therapy intervention is first awareness, right? If we're talking about 
people who have BFRBs, step one, awareness tracking. Right. Right. Same thing with OCD. What are your compulsions? Mm -hmm. What are your obsessions? Get to know it. Shame is the same way, right? We, if you have a toxic response to shame, I want to know it. I want you to track it. And I'm going to give you that compass to just give you a, a, a helping prompt to look at the different ways that I, re mm -hmm. I relate to these emotional experiences. Because they're also going to be a compass for treatment. Right. Right? Right. Yeah. And, and kind of, I, I, I would imagine within that compass, people gravitate more towards some some poles than others and knowing which ones get to you are going to help define how it is that you can help combat that or how you can best twist not twist those how you can best change some of those things for yourself to be in a more functional and and uh, uh, adaptive state with that feeling yes ultimately the goal is to is to only have the adaptive goldilocks zone of emotion where it's it's providing a function it's fleeting like all emotions ought to be that we're not sort of anchored stuck feeling this one thing and then perpetually trying to run from it right in in terms of building that awareness what are some things that you you recommend on how, how does you know for someone who's listening to this podcast and they're you know they're experiencing shame or they've got a loved one who's experiencing shame what are some ways that they can start to build the, the awareness that toxic shame is happening shame is happening and then they're getting into a toxic relationship with it that's a good question i think a good place to start is how long are you sort of trapped in this shame feeling as you might be experiencing it mm -hmm. right you might not think it's toxic at this point you might just think i'm feeling this feeling of shame how long are you there for because if you're there for minutes or hours or days some process is keeping you there, mm -hmm. right? And it's probably no longer functional, right? Shame is that lane departure software, right? It jostles you and then it's done, mm -hmm. right? You identify a self-corrective path and then it's done. Provided you make the adjustment. Right, exactly. Provided you make the adjustment or there's an adjustment to be made. But in that ideal circumstance, you know, like fear, fear doesn't linger for hours upon hours, mm -hmm. right? Unless you're still in the, the, the actual dangerous scenario, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I would start with that. How long have I been trapped in this? And then I would go into, do you, do you realize how you're responding to this? Mm -hmm. Right? Like the first thing I would look out for, and I think, again, it's probably the most pervasive, is self-criticism. Some form of self-criticism. You're being unkind, impatient, intolerant with yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you're ruminating on it. You're chewing on it again. You're talking about it a lot. Um, this is no longer about self-correction, mm -hmm. right? This is about something else. Um, so I'd start there. And, you know, um, again, I'm a huge fan of that compass. Um, as imperfect as it may be, um, can I get, can I take a look at that compass? Take a look at the recent event I've been experiencing, and see which of these four. Um, maybe it's all four. Maybe it's just one. I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, of course, trying to get someone to agree that what they're doing is actually unhelpful can be a bit of a mountain to climb. Mm -hmm. Right? We talk that some people have beliefs that that being self-critical is actually helpful, 
right? That being self-critical holds you accountable. It makes you not repeat the mistake. Um, and there's a, there's a conflation mm-hmm. there, right? Like I'm conflating, you know, um, holding myself accountable with beating myself up and beating yourself up is not the solution to anything. But again, that's, that's further down the road. I think it starts with, I'm stuck in a feeling I'm chewing on it. I'm being unkind to myself. It's lasting a long time. This has ceased to be about a healthy relationship to an emotion. Mm-hmm. And then we can dig further and go, uh, go where it tells us to go. Right. Right. Should we take a brief shift into looking at how shame shows up for people in experiencing OCD? Yeah, that'd be great. Go ahead. You, you, you want me to start? Yeah, uh, I can sure. do that. Sure. I mean, um, I don't think it's a surprise that, that OCD is not, you know, an anxiety disorder in the sense that the only thing you feel is anxiety. Mm-hmm. Right? Anxiety is a disorder of obsessions and compulsions. And we use anxiety as a shorthand to describe it, right? It's a disorder where you get distressed from obsessions. But what does that distress mean? Mm-hmm. Distress can be guilt it can be shame it can be disgust it can be fear and anxiety um so when we're talking about shame showing up it is a different animal here because most people don't want to talk about it right people are much more free to talk about fears they're not so free to talk about the things that might make them feel ashamed so a way of thinking about this is some people feel shame just from having a diagnosis Mm. Right, and a mental health diagnosis in general, but OCD in particular, because it seems to be the butt of a lot of jokes. We see this in campaigns um, for marketing, where it's mm-hmm. it's seen as a joke, right? That in TV shows of misrepresenting it, and and this is weirdo with this OCD, and people misuse it all the time. I'm so OCD because I have to do a certain thing. So, if you have a diagnosis of OCD, there's a tendency for a lot of people to sort of see it already as a shame, mm-hmm. right? That, that I have this thing, I'm broken, I'm weird, I'm, I'm, you know, something I don't want to be. So it can start as early as that. Just getting the diagnosis makes you want to sort of hide from it, not accept it. And, and that can lead to avoiding treatment. There's certainly data on that. So shame can come at that level. Mm-hmm. Shame can can come from the level of the content of one's obsessions. Absolutely. Right? We, we talk about taboo, which isn't my favorite way of describing it. Um, but certainly this idea of repugnant to us obsessional content. You know, you know, what if I'm a serial killer? What if I want to hurt animals? What if I want to hurt kids? Um, mm-hmm. So all, those, all of those more um, taboo, repugnant to self obsessions are, I think, way more likely to provoke shame than they are to provoke fear or threat um, and and far less likely to be communicated to a professional um, because that's another area of shame that we see a lot in our community is that untrained, mm-hmm. perhaps well-intentioned professionals hear things and they're like, oh, that's not OCD. Like, you're not washing your hands like, you don't have OCD. Ugh. Stop trying to, you know, you, you have OCD because you think TikTok told you you had OCD. You don't really have it. Um, so you're shaming someone when you do that, right? The message is shame. Mm-hmm. Um, you might get shame from a professional who uh, who doesn't understand the content of your obsessions and thinks you're a danger, 
We've right. certainly seen this where people have been hospitalized for what if I have, what if I want to, you know, uh, commit suicide uh, obsessions? What if, you mm -hmm. know, um, people having CPS called for what if I'm a pedophile obsessions? Yep. Um, and, and so that is a massive problem in the helping field in general is this misunderstanding and this overreaction to sort of cover one's ass through a referral to some thing without before understanding what's really going on for this person and the function of the thought and the function and the, the 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 experience of that content it's yes. very different yes, yes absolutely because you think a person you know already knows i don't want these thoughts right i already I, they're already antithetical to who I am. I can't get rid of them. So I'm terrified. I'm going to tell a doctor I have these thoughts and they're going to be like, ah, I think you're a risk to people. Oh my goodness. That that's only going to make the OCD worse. It, that's this person of authority. They're saying I am a problem and they're agreeing that yeah. these thoughts are true and real. Yeah, it is. It is. I don't know how to solve it other than just constant education and advocacy, but it is a huge problem and a very big source of shame. You know, societal shame kind of falls into that too. Messaging you've got around mental health, messaging you've got around OCD in particular. Same thing with messaging about treatments. Oh, you mm -hmm. take meds, you're a crazy person. You, you see a shrink that, you know, yeah. it's a lot less common, at least today than it was when I was a kid. It's certainly but, getting you know, better. It's, it feels like it's getting better. I don't know if it's true everywhere, but it feels like it's getting better. Uh, the last piece I'll say, and, and then you and I can sort of riff back and forth, is that shame can also come from overt compulsions. Mm -hmm. um, people, people sometimes miss that one. Like, the person who's driven to do a behavior that looks weird, mm -hmm. they know it looks weird, but they have to do it because they are completely immersed inside of a fear story that says, you better do this or else. Or else. Right. And that or else is so compelling that it doesn't matter how weird it looks to someone else. I have to do this thing repeatedly right. and be go, growing up with that and having people give you that message that you're you're so strange or so weird. Like they they know that this is a thing that they're doing that other people see as weird. And so overt mm -hmm. compulsions can be a very big source of shame, too, because they're often getting that feedback from their peer group, from their parents, from schools. Um, that's another, another thing we want to mention. In such a, a frustrating double, uh, double message or double standard that we send, it's tr trust your gut, listen to your feelings, be honest. But then, yeah, my feelings tell me that I need to do this. And that this is important. But then other people are over here telling me that I'm weird and bad for having this. So now I can't trust myself. So what, yeah. what, what do I believe? Because that feeling feels really bad, but when I do this thing, I feel good. Well, I'm going to trust that more. And, but I'm going to try to hide it, right? Yeah, that, it's, that, it's, that avoidance pull is, is evident. Yeah, there's a lot of isolation, a lot of feeling trapped. And a lot of wanting this to sort of just be swept under the rug, right? Uh, a common of a common way of understanding shame is that it thrives in secrecy. It thrives mm -hmm. in the dark, and um, and yeah, when we get these messages, um, as well intentioned as they may be, 
um, it has this effect on people, which again makes them avoidant of treatment and treatment professionals. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so it is a bit of a mountain we have to climb over. Right, and and in trying to break that down or helping someone to break that down, let's say they're they're experiencing that they're experiencing shame, but they've they've been able to get themselves into an office or maybe even actually it's take a step back someone who's listening to this podcast because they don't want to you know they don't want to see a therapist and they've you know they've now just you know, found something any sort of resource that's going to talk about it how do we start to break down that sense of shame, uh, toxic shame about this well i think it starts with podcasts like this um with support groups with in you know supportive online communities um where we put out good information right in the psychotherapy world we talk about psychoeducation um we want to educate people this is normal within an ocd content um this is not you this is not a wish this is not who you are it's not true that having a diagnosis means you're broken. Mm -hmm. um, to correct all of that at that level so that you might be able to get them into the first session because then it's on the therapist. The very first meeting, before you even agree to an appointment, there's usually some kind of interaction, mm -hmm. a phone call, an email, right? Some kind of interaction where the therapist has a beautiful opportunity to completely remove stigma to create a sense of understanding and acceptance, mm -hmm. right? This, we call this building a therapeutic relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Therapy 101. Um, and so all of those put together can sort of signal to the person, you know, I am not here to judge. I am not here to, to say something is right or wrong or weird. I am here to build a relationship with you and we can work on things together. But to get them into the office, that's where people like you putting podcasts out there um, and writing books and doing, doing trainings to other uh, advocates can be um, really helpful. You know, I, I've mentioned before like, people who run like your support groups. I know Chrissy Hodges is big in that world. Um, Instagram accounts. Mm -hmm. There are people out there with, with Instagram accounts that have tens of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. TikTok, mm -hmm. right? The good side of social media, getting out good information. That starts to de-shame the process from the get-go. Yeah. And this, this is getting to be more pervasive in society, I've noticed. Um, if, if, and if, if, a very specific example of that I've seen is, you know, if you ever waste time on Reddit, as I'm sure you never would, um, there, if, if someone is going to make a comment about OCD or I'm so OCD or my OCD, you know, I, I, I like the color blue because I'm so, whatever, whatever the nonsense is, more and more times people will comment on that, not as an attack, but as educating. Hey, this is actually what OCD is. So, and even in those posts, those confrontations, light confrontations, I suppose, it's, it is normalizing or it's, it's clarifying. This isn't what OCD is and it's not some, quote, weird behavior. It's something specific that is, is a thing that is treatable and workable and known. And that's something yeah. that needs to be avoided. 
Yeah, like this this year's OCD conference had Maria Bamford, a brilliant comedian, talk about her own mm-hmm. personal struggles. Anytime we have people who are have a lot of access to an audience mm-hmm. that can start to use humor, but in a way that's deshaming because it becomes, you know, hey, here's a real thing I had to deal with, and I'm humorously letting you know that it's not so abnormal, you know, and and. You know, the goal here, ultimately, perhaps it's a little Pollyanna-ish, is that, you know, in med school, in, you know, in all doctoral and master's level programs for helping professions, including nursing, you know, in all education professions, we are teaching people ways to to decrease shame, right? Now, you don't have to be an OCD expert if you're going to become a secondary, mm-hmm. you, know, uh, you know, school teacher, but you can learn how to use de-shaming language. And I think this is, this is the zeitgeist in our, in our culture growing right now. It's, it's what's causing tension for some people. Um, mm-hmm. But my hope is, is that what we, what we win is, is this sense of common humanity and being civil and, and understanding um, the world through the eyes of another, you know, basic stuff. Common respect. Um, yeah, common respect. Um, so the shame can start from there. The de-shaming process can start there. It can start between peers. It can start with parents. Uh, so anyone hearing this has an opportunity to create a space for someone that isn't starting off with shame. Um, and then that can increase the likelihood of seeing a therapist, hopefully one that understands what you're dealing with, if it's OCD or anxiety disorders, um, and uh, not get you caught up in faulty messaging mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, that you are actually somehow dangerous, because that, that is so hard to get people to come back from. Yeah. I'm going to take another turn, if I could, and bring us back to shaming. We've talked about shame, just the experience of shame, the role of shame, toxic shame. And, and, and then you also add this element of shaming mm-hmm. as an action. Yeah. So often shaming is something others do to us. If we start thinking about, you know, the examples we've given, it's like shaming can come from other people sort of tisk tisk, you know, um, at us, you know, telling us that we're not what we should be. Um, you know, dismissing our experiences. So that's the shaming that can come from others. It can be as as, as bad as bullying and, and ridicule and abuse or as, as subtle as disagreeing with someone when they're telling you their lived experience, right? Oh, no, 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 you just didn't do that right, mm. right? Sometimes we see this with, with, with people who've gone through OCD treatments. Um, they'll, they'll have not performed well Right, their Y box doesn't drop. They don't mm-hmm. feel a sense of quality of life improvement, and then, and then they might get the message, "Hey, um, you know, you, you you failed treatment." Yeah, there there it is. You just shamed them, right? As if this was a math test, right? right? Um, where you can study harder, right? Uh, treatment failed you. Mm-hmm. Treatments do that sometimes. It ain't your fault in that way, um, and we get a shame message from that and there's an opportunity to not give that shame message even some people will say you know i've tried you know i've tried this one particular treatment could be an ssri it could be erp it could be whatever i've tried it i've tried it i've tried it it just didn't get me better then what they hear either to them directly or through you know um 
information that they're reading or, or mm-hmm. social media posts they might hear. Yeah, but you just didn't do it right enough. You well, your therapist, yeah, your therapist needed to add this other ingredient. There wasn't enough vanilla extract in your ERP, right? Not, en- not enough nutmeg. And you just need that. So just do more of the same, but with a little bit of a different sauce added to it. Mm-hmm. And, and there's another shaming message. I, either my therapist wasn't good enough or I wasn't good enough or we together weren't good enough. And I think we need to consider how those messages can be problematic mm-hmm. for our clients who already feel as though, hey, uh, a large percentage of people get better. I didn't. Right. And and. How do we how do we talk to people about that without perpetuating a message that they're somehow broken, treatment resistant? What does that even mean? It's not a fun term. You know, I'm, it's perplexing, right? Treatment resistant. Okay, so your treatment was supposed to work for 100 percent of people, and here's this weird person who doesn't respond to it. No. So not right? only do I have OCD, which quote is weird and wrong and bad, but now I'm going to do the one thing that social media, everything says this is the right thing to do. CBT, ERP, it's not working. I'm doubly broken. I'm especially broken. Yes. And again, like whether that's an intended message or accidental, it can come through quite frequently for the clients with lived experience um, who've had, again, the lived experience of failing a treatment. And I think we'd maybe change the language around that a little bit and say, hey, you're not a treatment failure and you're not treatment resistant, right? You're not a staph infection, right? You're not treatment resistant. We have an incomplete and fallible treatment, right? That's what we have. We have a series of treatments that are good. They're not great. You know, I think we can be honest about that. You know, and say that, hey, there are gaps in our ability to treat people. And some people fall into those gaps. That's not your problem. That's our treatment community's problem. And I think it's hard for us as clinicians to admit that. We spend all this time, all this money learning how to do it, all this time practicing it and and talking about how it's going to... I have a whole podcast dedicated to talking about how this stuff works. And it is incomplete, it's certainly better than where it was 50 years ago. For sure. I yeah, can't even I mean, imagine. The numbers, what, oh, what's that? Yeah, I, guess, I, I agree with you. It's way better than 50 years. You know, it's going to be way better 50 years from now because exactly. my hope is that we don't stop learning. We, don't, we didn't figure it out in the 1970s. Nope. You know, like, we're still figuring it out. Um, and that's only going to be good for our clients. And therapists feel shame too. I've certainly felt my fair share of shame for not helping a client to the degree that I hoped I could. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the story I tell myself is, well, I'm not Reed Wilson. I'm not, you know, this other pinnacle. I'm not Sally Winston. I'm not Carl Robbins. I'm not these people who've been doing this for 40 or 50 years who clearly they know it better than I do. Yeah. You know, I, I, I shame myself. I feel shame. I, I feel like I've failed the client. And, Sometimes our own reaction to that isn't to sort of check in and go, maybe it's just that the treatment itself wasn't going to work, right? And and instead of saying that there's some dynamic between you and the client that they didn't try hard enough or you didn't know enough or you didn't use the right metaphor on the right day and Jupiter wasn't in a line with Venus and, you know, like, you if know. I just paid more attention in that ACT training, 
Yeah, right? If I'd gone to Mike Hetty's talk at the IOCDF conference, I would have just fixed him. Because he he cures everyone. Everyone. First session. Every single person. It's crazy. And so we as therapists are are not, you know, immune, obviously, to shame. Um, And when people are depending on us and looking to us and trusting us to help them, and then what we're doing to help them doesn't help them, there's, there's that tendency. Am I blaming myself? Am I blaming others, right? Mm-hmm. Attack self, attack others. Am I avoiding? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes we refer out. We're just like, well, you know, you know, go to this other person who knows it better. Right. And, and I've certainly been a part of that, right? I'm not saying that's, a, that, that's something I haven't done, but I'm on the other side of that now. I'm the person people refer to. Oh, you need to see Mike. Go see, I'm like, what am I going to do? You fix him on the first session. You just told us you did. Right? So like, what, what am I going to do? So, um, anyway. But I think, this is a, I think this is a really important point for, for the clinicians who listen to this podcast, that we feel this. I think this, there, is the, there is a sense from clinicians. Well, all right, there is a sense for every single clinician out there, short of some people who think they're infallible and whatever to those people. But we do feel this, and there can be that sense of, hyper responsibility and shame and guilt and beating ourselves up and I'm, 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 I, I wrote down that compass thing so I keep referencing that I, I, I've seen I've experienced all those poles in my own practice and you know some therapists will talk to each other in kind of hushed tones of like hey you feel this too and like yeah I feel this too as opposed as if we're not supposed to feel them yeah. I mean, and it's, it's not just with clients, right? Like it's with learning new things. Like when I first started learning yeah. ACT, right? Like, yeah. so I, I, be, I began formally in the mental health field in 05, but I didn't get like licensed to practice until like 07. Mm-hmm. And ACT was just emerging. They hadn't even had their RCT for OCD yet, but there was presentations at conferences, ACT for OCD. I saw two Higgs speak in like 08 um, about this. And I'm hearing all this stuff. I'm reading the ACT manual and they're talking about like RFT and, you know, all sorts of like foreign concepts and foreign language. And I'm like, maybe I'm not smart enough to be in this field. Like, do people just get this? Does this just make sense? And, you know, I started to feel a little shame. Like maybe I don't know what I'm doing. And anytime I try to learn something new, mm-hmm. like when I started learning ICBT, mm-hmm. I started learning, I don't understand this. Right. It's confusing to me. What do you mean? Um, and again, if we if if all we do is try to escape the shame that comes from trying to learn something new, we just stick to what we know. Um, we get ourselves in our own trouble because mm-hmm. then we become like that one trick pony that has that one thing we do, and that's it. You know, all I do is speak English. So please learn to speak English. Thank you. You know. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, if you're a one trick pony, it's a very good trick. But yeah. We, 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 and that, that can be for some of us a way to start building is if we were, you know, if we're falling into that shame trap as clinicians, perhaps we, you know, one way that we can help with that is to grow and to learn and to push into different things. But also, again, having that humility that we're growing and learning. We're going to mess things up. Yeah. And us therapists can create an environment for other therapists and say, hey, listen, we, I, I, I have traversed this area 
you know, I like to do a lot of, I, I do supervision, I mentor interns, I, mm-hmm. I do a lot of case consultation because I benefited so much from another person with decades more experience than me telling me, listen, that's normal. This, this, this is okay. You know, one of the most talked about and widely attended workshops at an ADA conference a few years ago was Sally Winston, David Barlow. Um, oh, I'm going to forget the other person. Maybe it was... Dave Carbonell or Marty Seif, um, but there's a panel of people, people who've been in the field 40 plus years, right? Mm-hmm. Wrote the textbooks, coined the terms, were around before panic disorder was a diagnosis. Right. Right. Um, trailblazed it. They're up there talking about failed cases. Mm-hmm. Where we screwed up. Yes. Where we screwed And people were like just sighing relief going, oh my goodness, the, the, the elephant has been revealed right? Everyone feels this. So if we can create an environment for each other, uh, you know, for the clinicians listening, create an environment for each other to say, hey, you know, if you don't get it, that's cool. We didn't get it at first either, right? It's okay to not get it at first, to not understand it, but keep trying, right? Right. Um, And that's where I think, you know, case consultation and our own use of building therapeutic alliance can be useful within our own community. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, so we've kind of, we've, we've touched on a lot of different things. I mean, certainly normalizing the experiences that we do have on, you know, for someone experiencing OCD, also for the, the clinicians out there listening to this. Um, what, one of the, I, well, I, I think we've maybe diverted away from the original question of shaming language, or oh, I, yeah. I, I don't know yeah, if we've yeah. beat that dead horse or if we're just going to bypass the half dead horse. Well, I think we can, we can, you know, it's not a super complicated topic. You know, shaming either is external from others, society is some, a person, whatever, or you can be shaming yourself, which is, you know, another way of saying attacking the self. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to give yourself a shame over, right? Like a comb over, but a shame over. All right. Um, All right. And, and I'm going to just, I'm going to marinate myself in this mesquite shame. Um, and again, it's just another presentation of attacking the mm-hmm. self. When we talk about shaming, it's just the verb of toxically, you know, um, relating to yourself. Right. Right. So back to that awareness, catching yourself in the middle of doing that, how you're doing that. And I think that's where, you know, to perhaps shift that into what do we do about that? We've talked about compassion. I know a lot of work done out there about compassion and how to apply that and what that means for us. Um, and, you know, I guess, can you talk a little bit about compassion and is compassion the antidote to shame? Yeah. Well, it's certainly um, incredibly important. I would say necessary, but not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, from my from my perspective, compassion is is sort of getting its due in uh, its due time in the spotlight. Um, that pie chart that compassion, self compassion, which comes out of the capacity to be compassionate to others. Um, is is a part of that. So yes, we can start with compassion, self-compassion, and there is there's a, a fair amount of resources out there for people. Like you can go on to self-compassion.org, you can take a free, you know, psychometrically validated assessment on your level of self self-compassion, 
And there's homework assignments that help you build your level of self-compassion. It's free. Um, again, that's that's for non-clinical populations, generally speaking, but mm -hmm. it's out there. And where's TED Talks? Self-compassion.org. Self-compassion.org. Okay. Yeah, that's Kristen Neff's website. Okay. Um, she has a, a validated measure of self-compassion. Uh, it breaks it down into like a couple of different think five or six scores that you can get okay. um so anytime you're dealing with non-judgmental mindfulness so what the research seems to be consistently showing us is that it's mindfulness but a very specific kind of mindfulness non-judgmental mindfulness building that skill is really good to building self-compassion into decreasing shame if we're to broaden this beyond just self-compassion and mindfulness, we're looking at compassion-focused therapy ideas. Mm -hmm. They have something called compassionate mind training, which, again, can be an entire series of podcasts. But in, its sh in, a brief, um, in a brief description, it's looking at different aspects of, like, compassionate emotion and, and sensation. What does that compassion feel like in the body? compassionate behaviors compassionate awareness compassionate imagery um and learning to build upon all of those pieces through direct practice can enhance one's um level of, of self-compassion and compassion towards others so that piece of the pie um is i think really accessible um there are barriers to that Mm -hmm. uh, right not everyone looks at self-compassion goes sign me up that sounds amazing mm -hmm. right some people look at self-compassion and think well that's you know that's for some other people mm. but i i'm blue collar i pull myself up by my bootstraps i don't deal with any of that sort of soft towards self perspective right um i, I come from a different world where that ain't gonna fly mm -hmm. and russ harris uh, famous act clinician mm -hmm. has a couple of ebooks one of them is called the barriers to self-compassion it's a fantastic mm -hmm. short read it's free um but helping people understand their uh, ambivalence <coughs> towards practicing self-compassion is another level of intervention psychoeducation work um if we branch outside of self-compassion right which again has a, a large part of it is mindfulness it's direct work on building your own capacity to to shift attention towards compassionate feelings compassionate images um compassionate behaviors again towards the self we start looking into other areas like well what other skills can be useful mm -hmm. and if we come out uh, and branch out of the cbt for a minute it, what the analysts and the psychodynamic folks have have been very good at um, is, is noticing that that shame and pride are actually flip sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. That sort of shame can function as almost like a thermostat for pride. Right. Right. So there's a point where like we ought to have some pride in what we do. Right. I call it taking stock in a job well done. Mm -hmm. I should be able to sit with that for a few minutes but not let it get so high that I'm braggadocious, mm -hmm. right? That I am the bee's knees, that I'm a narcissist, right? right? So 
if if pride goes unchecked, you get the, the braggadocious narcissist who thinks they're important above and beyond all people. Right. And if you go unchecked with the shame, you think you're you're sort of lower than the low. Right. You're the yeah, you're the, you're a barnacle on a boat. You know, and what we're looking for here is again a healthy balance between pride and shame. Mm-hmm. And part of this could be building pride. Um, a way of thinking about this that's, I think, tangible is: Can you take a compliment mm-hmm. earnestly? So hard. If I said to you, Kevin, I think you're a really good podcast host. Which is true. You're very easy to talk to. You're very easy to listen to. I, and I already have my response, but go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I've, I've been interviewed by a lot of podcasts, and they're wonderful. But there's just something about the dynamic that's just easy, right? Um, I just gave you a compliment, and you know you're going to be like, "Yes, I know. Thank you." Obviously, obviously, Obvious. my response was definitely not. Have you heard Kim Quinlan's podcast, though? Or, I talked about shame on her podcast. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. It's, it is, I, I used to say, and it's, it's a skill to build, but we'll, I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that. But yeah, it's, it's interesting even for myself, if I'm, you know, if I can be candid. Yeah, it's, un, it's uncomfortable to, it's uncomfortable to receive a compliment for a number of reasons. And, you know, I used to run a, 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 a group, you'd have eight people in the room. And if you want to see people just, just writhe in their chair, we did an exercise where people had to go around. Someone was in the hot seat and they said, everyone has to go around and give this person a compliment. And the only thing that that person can say is thank you. It's un, it's terrifying. It's uncomfortable. Absolutely. Right. I remember, vividly this goes back a while now i'm just eating lunch and, uh, at, at a conference and i'm sitting at a table with people who i, I look up to right um, my the founder and co- co- co-director um or executive director i should say now of the institute where i have sally winston i hold mm-hmm. her in great esteem mm-hmm. you know um it's, it's amazing to be able to work with her and learn from her i'm sitting with her i'm sitting with reed wilson um, Marty Seif, um, I think Dave Carbonell, some sort of luminaries. Like, look at these people. They speak so well. They're so smart. I want to be them when I grow up. And Sally says to me in part of a conversation, she's like, when did you know you were smart? And it was just the most innocent question. She wasn't, there was nothing behind it. She's like, you're smart. When did you know you were smart? And my first was like, are you fucking with me? Like, <laughs> I'm not smart. I just memorized some stuff from a manual and then like repeated it. I take other people's ideas and like roll with it. Like that's, is that smart? And her response to me, you know, I can't remember exactly what it was, was something like, you know, you know, I just kind of page you a compliment. My observation of you is, is this. And like, you know, you're unable to sort of hear it. Mm. Like, you know, like, yeah, that's true. I wasn't able to hear. Why is that? Now, again, that's a little shame, right? That's a small shame. That's an embarrassment. But when you think about the concept of pride, which is almost non-existent in someone who has got toxic shame. Right. It can start with learning how to take a compliment. It can start with, you know, uh, taking stock of a job well done. I, I, you know, I'm kind of a boring person, right? But like, I like to mow my yard. Um, and 
I don't, I don't like the effort necessarily, the sweat, but when I'm done, I stand on the back porch like a, like a dad. I'm not a dad, but I, you know, like that dad meme. And I'm looking at the, I'm like, that looks good. That's a job well done. I take my five minutes and say, I did that. You know, yeah. I can do the same thing when I washed my car. Same thing when I, I look at an intern who's grown into an amazing therapist and has really amazing things to say. Um, wow, look, I was part of that. T- taking stock of a job well done. Mm-hmm. Um, not, being, not being able to run from it. Don't dismiss it. Just let it be is, yeah. is, is practicing pride. Our clients can benefit from this and we can help them by you did a really good exposure you didn't think you could do. Email me. Right? Do a small brag. Yeah. Brag on yourself. Yeah. Right? And build that pride. Build that sort of self-efficacy. Build that sense because that is moving you away from toxic shame and getting you used to sort of going, I actually have, you know, value. I have good contributions. I'm a worthy person. Um, that's moving you away. And again, it's consistent with feeling a feeling. I don't right. have to control it and get rid of it. Right. I'm worthy of acknowledgement and worthy of yeah. praise the the word you used in, in the, the the training i watched of yours was savor yes i wrote that down i circled it i can show you the page save it's just such a beautiful way to describe this and i love that you talked about all these skills as something that you build you build them it isn't this light switch that we turn on or this thing that we just go like well i guess i'm gonna be um proud of myself now or i'm gonna uh, i'm I'm gonna have self-efficacy it's we we practice this and for for those of us who beat ourselves up more than we ought to it's something that we do need to practice for for all those weirdos out there who are very proud of themselves good for them they might need to practice more um you know uh humility but for those of us on the other end of that pole we're practicing taking that compliment practicing acknowledging ourselves practicing letting letting other people acknowledge that um, I I love celebrating with my clients when something good happens or they, you know, they did the hard thing, and we can take that few moments and make a big deal out of it. And it's and, you know, all people early on in the process will say like, you know, it's I I I, I took an hour long shower, but it wasn't an hour and a half. That's a big deal. Yeah, you know, us adult. The therapists that treat adults can learn something from people who treat kids. Constantly giving them little tokens of success. Here's a yo-yo. Here's a slinky. Here's some sidewalk chalk. You know, um, here's a here's a, a, a certificate I printed out with your name on it for you know a job well done. Resisting fifty percent of your compulsions this week, mm-hmm. right? And and if we didn't do that, it, it, the client usually says to themselves like, well. I should be at least able to do that. So I'm not going to celebrate something I should have already been able to do. They dismiss it. They walk away from it. And, and again, it just, it's not building of that pride and it's not savoring a job well done, savoring um, your, your value. Yes. Yes. I, I talk about this with, with folks as, as calling, uh, uh, calling it uh, celebrating your successes rather than celebrating our failures, uh, is pulled from a, um, With Winning in Mind. It's a, a book on um, sports psychology that, oh. you know, if um, written by a, a, a rifleman. And, you know, when he's hitting tens all day and then he finally hits that nine, he goes, 
what the heck? What I do? I must have messed up. What I, you know, I, I dropped dropped the barrel, or I winked, or I flinched, or I, and we spend a big deal, or we make a big deal out of failure, failure. Nine is yeah. still pretty stinking good, but when we hit a ten, whatever, we don't even care. Yeah, and again, I think failure and shame is almost sort of of the same family, right? Failure is a thing that occurred, but it's also a way you feel. I feel like a failure. And, you know, coming with that, that quote with John Bradshaw, which is, you know, um, failure is an event, not an identity, right? Right. Um, shame is an event, not an identity. Um, and that's another signal when you start turning it into sort of this global self-reference. I am a failure. I'm broken. I am wrong. I am there. Now you're in a toxic relationship too. So if we can sort of copy and paste that from 15 minutes ago and put that into how else should I, how to keep an eye out for, for right. when I'm in toxic shame. Right. Right. So, you know, I think for, for anybody out there who's, you know, who's listening to this and wondering, you know, maybe, maybe they're wanting to push against their quote, natural inclination towards shame or their practiced routine um, and wanted to push against that. Maybe the idea of building pride and self-efficacy and self-confidence sounds, sounds nice. And so there's an allure to it. What's, what's something that they can do to start with that? Is there, is there a, you know, step one with that? That's a really good question. I suppose there could be a step one with that, you know? Um, I mean, you can work in sort of generic ways, you know, doing something you've never done before and feeling a sense of pride in that. Like I cooked a meal by myself or, you know, I changed the oil in my car or I learned a new song on, a, on the guitar. Um, small things that can, that can add up that are not really related to disorders and mm-hmm. not related to mental health issues in particular. Um, the other thing is, is I think sharing which is, is, is a huge leap for some people, but sharing, it doesn't have to be, you know, the biggest skeleton in your closet, but just sharing your humanness with another person. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, seeing, you know, seeing something in them and making them feel normal by sharing something with your, about yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. When I see people do public speaking and I see their face get red, and their voice crack and like, Oh, I've been there. Me too. I'll mm-hmm. go up to them afterwards and just say, you know, you did a really, great job um first time i spoke i was petrified like i stared at the ground um and you know normalize a self-disclosure that again is you challenging your own shame i'm not keeping this a secret yeah and helping someone else and um i think that can be useful then we start getting into small steps um on your particular topic your anxiety disorder your ocd um but, uh, and that gets a little bit more nuanced, right? Working with a therapist on how to, how to address that in a more sy- systematic way. Um, does that answer the question? I, I think it does. It does. And, and, you know, yes, we are here to talk about shame and, you know, on the fear cast, OCD and anxiety, but, you know, shame is pervasive it doesn't just show up for someone when they're in within their ocd they're experiencing it within their ocd they're probably experiencing it in all other areas and maybe that's an uh, too much to say but they're experiencing it elsewhere in their life right so 
practicing these in small ways and letting yourself, letting yourself experience that positive end of things, the pride element of things, and bring yourself up from that basement. Again, I, lo I love the idea that we're not trying to eliminate these things, right? We're not trying to eliminate shame, kind of like, you know, and this is, I think, a misperception that people have, some people have when they start treatment. I'm going to get into this anxiety treatment, and they're going to knock out the anxiety. I'm not going to feel anxious anymore because I met Mike Hetty, we had our session, and now I should be free of it. And alas, when the anxiety is still there, or anxiety, not necessarily the anxiety disorder, but the feeling is there, it can be perceived as this, as this failure. And that's that, that shift that we need to have. It's not about getting rid of it it's about how do we experiencing it and and for some for some it's how do we experience it, the complexity of it of how do we feel anxiety and joy at the same time and and that saying that those things are okay so how do we let shame be there just like we can have pride right but not become not have it become our everything, that it's just one of the flavors within the emotional experience. hope I'm not just rambling now. No, no, this all makes great sense. Um, you and I are solving the world's problems together today, aren't we? You know what? We're putting ourselves out of business, and isn't that the purpose of our job anyways? You know, one one thing, and I, I perhaps I'm a little overly sensitive to it on this podcast, because I know people can listen to it, is, you know, we absolutely can remove toxic shame, right? Like we don't have to accept toxic shame in perpetuity, mm -hmm. right? It, just like we can treat an anxiety disorder to mm -hmm. subclinical levels, which is effectively, you know, getting rid of it. Um, but what's remaining is the capacity to feel anxious about normal things you should be able to feel anxious about. Same thing with shame. Feeling shame for things for normal things. And that's the thing we want to learn how to have a healthy relationship with is normal, healthy, functional, occasional, fleeting shame. Um, as opposed to sort of what people might be hearing when we commonly talk about shame is the toxic, scary. And that's, and, and that's a good, good, uh, good thing to point out. Yes, we're not saying... Good. We're going to hold on to a little bit of toxic shame because it's a good thing to continue to have toxic shame. It's the experience of it, the shame, small s, shame, is one of the feelings within the, you know, color wheel of emotion that we can have, right? I, I, yes. I like what it said about um, ACT. It's that it's about feeling the, you know, it's it's not about feeling feeling better. It's about feeling better, letting ourselves have the natural experience of the human emotion and have the broad range of it without the expectation that we're supposed to not have one or shove one down because we all know what happens when we try to ignore a feeling. But we take stock in it, we acknowledge it, kind of like that feelings are data, not direction. Yeah, there it is. And now what do I do with that? What do I choose to do with it rather than responding in these unhelpful ways, kind of that, that compass we, we were talking about Absolutely. earlier? Absolutely. Yep. Right. That's very well summarized. Yeah. Well, I know I've taken a ton of your time and this is a, um, going to be a, a long episode, but you know, the topic of shame can be in incredibly broad. Is there, is there anything else that you'd want to add to give someone some ideas on where, where, I mean, we've talked about like where they can begin, but is there anything else that you'd want to add at the tail end of, of this, you know, very broad conversation? Um, I suppose the thing I'd like to sort of, get across um, to the consumers or, or 
clients or sufferers listening is, you know, see if you can't find a way that if you do have toxic shame to make it a part of your clinical treatment. So if you have someone you're working with, make it explicit. Let's work on this explicitly. It's not something we want to pay lip service to and just say, oh, yeah, you feel shame. That's sad. Practice self-compassion. All right, now let's go back to exposure work, right? There is its own work, right, to be done. And for the therapists listening, you know, dive into it. Learn about it. The best place to learn about it is with your own lived experience. Mm. We don't all have panic disorder or social anxiety or, or OCD, but we all have shame. And I'll, be, I'll be willing to bet a lot of us have experience with some toxic shame mm -hmm. and use your own self to work through that compass or whatever works for you, right? There's a lot of different ways of thinking about shame to see how you can understand it differently. So then you can weave it into the work with your clients because I, I don't think it's likely that you're going to run into a client if you treat anxiety or OCD that only feels everything but shame. Right. Oh, yes, this was disgust, fear, right? Um, a sprinkle in some anger, no, but definitely not shame. No, yeah. you're going to run into shame probably the most. So I think it's worth looking at and, um, and treating it's different from fear, treating it as, as its own distinct thing. Um, I think that would be my message. Awesome. Well, I appreciate all the time you've been able to share with us today and all of your expertise. If, is there a, a, a place people can go to learn more about you or, or the, 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 any of your writings or presentations? Um, the best place to, to sort of find most up-to-date kind of writings and podcasts and webinars would probably be the website that's for the group practice that I, I co-direct, which is uh, anxietyandstress.com, all spelled out. Um, and you can find some articles on there. You can find podcasts, not just from me, but from a lot of other mm -hmm. really great clinicians. Um, that'd be the go-to spot. Awesome. And if people have questions about shame, would you be willing to jump back on on a future episode and answer some questions? Happy to. Awesome. Well, Mike, I'll let you go here, but uh, thank you so much for your time on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kevin. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for making it through that episode. So if you have questions about shame or would like a little bit more information about it, uh, send me a message over at fearcastpodcast.com. Or again, send me a message over at Instagram, fearcastpodcast over there. Uh, and I'll try to get Mike on uh, to discuss any specific questions uh, that, uh, that, are, um, uh, that, that I can't field. Or if, if Mike has availability, just to have him on uh, to extend his expertise. So, um, uh, everybody, please remember that the FearCast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you need a little bit of guidance and, and a little bit of help in your recovery, go over to FearCastPodcast.com. Click on the submit, or assume not submit a question. Click on the find help link, and uh, you can uh, uh, find a little bit of information for you there. So, until next time, everybody, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.